You know, when things occur, the first time something significant happens, you tend that's through this picking your mind. You remember that? Uh, so I was really excited. My wife was excited when probably in the first month or so we were there, we had a, a young man uh, in his early 20s that he was married. He came and uh, accepted Christ as his Savior. And he and his wife, she, I think she transferred in her membership. Uh, they, they came uh, every Sunday. They were involved in everything we were doing. Uh, really interested in learning and growing, it would seem. And his, uh, the man's name was Jeff. And uh, began to give Jeff opportunities to do devotions and meetings and fill in, teach a little Sunday school, things like that. And probably within the first year, year and a half, he indicated he felt like God was calling him to go into the ministry. So I said, the first thing you have to do is you're going to have to, to get some education. You need to go to Bible college. And there was another young preacher, pastor in the area that was had given up his church, was attending our church, and he too had not had any schooling, so they both decided together they were going to go off to Bible college. Take their wives. In those days, there wasn't any such thing as distance learning or online learning, so they moved 500 miles away. Entered into school, and of course we were really excited about the whole thing, and, and I, Jeff just always sticks in my mind, the first person who came to know the Lord in my ministry, the first person I baptized, both of those young men ended up back home before the semester was over. Wasn't quite sure why. But worse than that, Jeff and his wife, they weren't back in church on a regular basis. They showed up a time or two and then they were gone and they were gone. And I, what in the world has happened? Such a discouraging thing. And finally, they quit coming all together. And I would try to go to visit and talk to them. They never could get up, find them. I never seemed to get a chance to talk to them. Finally, his wife showed up one day, knocked on our door, came in and said, uh, Jeff was leaving her. And uh, she wanted us to pray. Of course, we did. And uh, I kept trying my best to to find him and finally was able to go up and knock on his door one night and he didn't invite me in, we had it was a very short conversation, uh, went away discouraged about that, found out later that uh, he uh, had definitely left town, I don't know, I don't know all the details, but uh, so discouraging. And I wondered, especially in those days, I wondered much about what in the world had taken place. Was he truly a believer? Was he out of the will of God? Uh, I, I don't know the answer. But still don't to this day, don't know what happened to him. I sincerely hope he came back to the Lord, but I don't know that he ever did. Now, all of you, I don't think, if you think about it, if you're thinking, I'm an exception to this, uh, just think a little harder, you'll probably find out you're not. But I would guess that everybody here has had a somewhat similar experience with somebody that you know, care about, or have led to the Lord, or uh, went to church with, or someone in your family that seemingly devoted their lives to Christ, were born again, and it didn't last. Now, when you guys were talking about this, somebody was talking about the statistics or something this week. Uh, how do you how do you process that? It can be a very discouraging, very uh, depressing experience, especially for me as a young pastor. I never thought about anything like that happening. Just hadn't crossed my mind. But here I was in front of it. 
The parable this morning we're going to look at, the parable of the sower, deals with this very thing. And because we all have known someone or cared about someone or ministered to someone who hasn't really proven over time to be a believer, even, or we don't know, there's been a, a burden on our hearts. The thing about it is, Jesus told us this is the way it's going to be. This is normal. Remember last week we, we talked about the compass. Matthew 13 and the parables are our compass to keep us pointed in the right direction during this time period between Christ's first coming and second coming. Well, that compass is not that. I'm not talking about do I do this or is the Lord leading me? That's not the kind of compass I'm talking about. The kind of compass I'm talking about is the one in our head that says everything's all right. God's still in command. God's still in control. God's still sovereign. And anything that I'm encountering, anything I'm dealing with, he already knows about. In fact, most all of it, he's already told us is going to happen. And when you understand that, it changes your spiritual perspective. And it helps you, not because of discouragement or depression or whatever, to just step back from your commitment. So let's look at chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold the parable, behold the sower went out to sow. But let's stop right there and talk about this word we find here in verse 3, and he spoke many things to them in parables. You'll notice on your sheet, the Greek word translated parable is a combination of two words. In other words, it's a compound word, which means along, one of those words means to be alongside of something, and the other one means literally to throw something down. So basically the word parable means two things that are placed together. One's here, and you put something else beside it to see the difference, to make a comparison. That's what the word parable means. Uh, we, we sometimes can say they're stories, we can call them illustrations, or whatever. But the scriptural word here is the word parable. Now, the parable of the sower is not said to be a parable in and of by itself. It just says he spoke to them in parables, and then he starts talking about the parable of the sower. But the subsequent parables are specifically called parables, so obviously this first one is as well. Because we're told that in verse 3. You see the references here, Matthew 13, 18, 24, 31, 33, 36, and verse 53. Those are all the verses in Matthew 13 where the word parable or parables occurs. So they're all referred to as parables. Now, understand the meaning of parables. We're talking about a comparison or a contrast of some sort. Now, if you laid a yardstick and a ruler down side by side, there's really only one point, right? One smaller than the other. One, they're both the same type of measure, but one just measures 12 inches, one measures 36. That's a singular comparison or conclusion you can draw from the comparison. Now, look on your sheet. Therefore, parables have a singular meaning. When interpreting a parable, look for the singular meaning rather than find meaning in every aspect of the parable. <clears throat> Follow the old saying, don't make a parable walk on all fours. I don't know who first came up with that. It's been around for a long time. 
especially in, in reference to parables, you'll hear that quoted. Don't make a parable walk on all fours. In other words, don't try to find meaning in every aspect of the parable. A parable is not about three comparisons or four comparisons, it's about one comparison. It has a singular meaning. Each of the seven parables will have a singular meaning all the way through. That will clear up, if you keep that in your mind, that will clear up almost every interpretive problem that we have with the ones going forward. And believe me, we're going to see some interpretive issues. But if you stick to this, and remember, don't make the parable walk on all fours. Don't try to stretch it. Look at what the comparison is. That's the point. It'll clear up anything that would be, you know, fuzzy in our minds. Now, I was watching uh, a YouTube video last night my wife put on of a very well-known pastor, preacher, scholar. Uh, if I quoted his name, some of you would definitely recognize him. Of course, when I heard his name, I said, well, he's, he's not a dispensationalist. Uh, he's not, in my opinion, got the right views on uh, a lot of things. But uh, a lot of things he's good. Right? She said, polite, should we just go on? I said, no, let's see what he has to say. He's dealing with the parable of the sower. By the way, my wife knows a lot of my research and helps me find illustrations and she assists me with a, you know, like a, I don't know, a research assistant all the time. So she, she just did this. I didn't even know she was going to put it on TV. So he starts out and he tells everybody, well, the parables have one meaning, except for the parable of the sower, it's an allegory. <laughs> <laughs> and he missed the whole point, obviously. Uh, yes, the first parable is not specifically taught, said to be a parable, but it's said of it in the same verse when he says he spoke to them in parables, so it's, it's pretty obvious. Plus all the rest of them were called parables. So keep that one thing in mind. So let's talk about the parable of the sower. The, the narration is, is pretty straightforward, and Jesus, in this parable as well as every other one that he refers to in Matthew 13, comes from everyday life in Israel back in those days. Everything he brings up was not, some of them sound a little odd to us because we're 2,000 years removed from the culture. But they immediately picked up a lot of things we have to stop and think about. So this was an everyday thing. Behold, a sower went forth to sow. Most of us, I think, probably understand what this meant. The farmer had a, some sort of a basket or a bag slung around his shoulder with seed in it. And he would walk down through the field just broadcasting the seed in every direction. They didn't have modern day things like plows, tractors. Uh, they did what they could to, to break up the soil in primitive ways. But uh, it wasn't specifically sowing seeds in a specific spot scattering seeds on fertile ground. So that's what's going on here. Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some, feed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them. So, this is what's going on. <clears throat> the broadcasting of seeds here has called caused many to refer to this, and I refer to it as the parable of the sower. The sower is not the point. Others have called it the, the parable of the seed. The seed really isn't the point. Now, they're important to the story, and Jesus will interpret this for us in a minute, and he'll tell us what's going on there. But the only thing that varies from parable to parable, in these parables listed here, the words of seven that we're going to cover, the only thing, let me say that again, say it wrong. The only thing in this parable that differs as he goes through the different situations, the soil on the hard ground, 
the soil among the thorns, I mean, you know, that had thorns in it. The, the soil was hardened. The soil, it was good soil. It was cultivated, ready to go. The only thing that varies or changes the four things he's going to talk about is the soil. Because in every case, a sower walked down the row and sowed seed in every one of them. The only thing that changes or differs is the soil the seed fell into. Which brings us to your next point here you need to fill in. Broadcast seed fell on four types of soil with a different result in each case. Jesus explained this parable later, Matthew 13, 18, and 23. So the four soils are the key to understanding the comparison or understanding the parable. Now we can begin, that being said, with the first, the hardened ground. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Now, in those days, they didn't have fences. They didn't fence in their property. Everybody knew what was their property, and they, they had these paths that would be walked upon between one person's field and the other. You wouldn't want to, you know, walk through your neighbor's crop, right? So they had the paths that would go around the perimeter. And these paths would be used by the various people in that area that had fields, and they'd use it to go in the town or go in this direction or that direction. And so around the field would be a beaten down, hardened path. This is the hardened ground. This is what fell, as it says in the New American Standard, beside the road. Literally, we would say, in the road, in the path. That's not a very good place for seed to fall. Jews might say, well, why would the sower sow seed in the path? He wasn't paying attention to every seed. He's broadcasting seed. He's getting as close as he can to the edge of his field, but some of it's going to overlap in the path, right? The birds came and ate them up. Well, let's drop down. Now to where Jesus interpreted this parable, down to verse 18. Just a little bit later on, the disciples asked him, well, what does this mean? Verse 18 of chapter 13. Here then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom... Seed was sown beside the road. So, the sower is not identified. The seed is not identified so far, but we understand. God, God's people, uh, there's a lot involved in the sowing of seed. Whether it be in a local church, or whether it be someone witnessing in, this, in their community, whatever. Seed gets sown. That, that's part of our responsibility, part of the Great Commission. We're going to go out and make disciples of all nations. The seed is the Word of God, the message. And the soils represent the heart and therefore represent the response that is neither made or not made by those who hear the message that is given to them or receive the seed that is sown. <clears throat> that being the case then, away the seed from the hearts of people. In other words, Satan has a role to play in people's hardened hearts. 
in their response, in their rejection of the gospel. I think in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it talks about how he blinds the minds of those who believe not. So he has a role in that, and that's, that's what's pictured here. So the first part of this, the hardened ground, represents those that do not understand or respond in any way. That's your two words there. They represent the hearts of those who do not understand the message or respond to it in any way. It's just outright rejection. Satan blinds their minds, hardens their hearts. There's no response at all other than just to reject it. Let's move on to the shallow ground. Back to verse 5. Others, he said, fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Now going over to Jesus' interpretation, verse 20, the one on whom seen was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word, and immediately receives it with joy, that he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, a farmer would get some seed, cast a little too far, and get out on the beaten path. But a farmer, a farmer's going to be smart enough to know not to sow a lot of seed among a bunch of rocks. That's not what he's talking about. In Israel, there are this underlying bed of rock, slightly down from the soil, many places, not everywhere, but a farmer might have a field that looks perfectly good, and some of it is, but some of it might have a seam of rock underneath making the soil above it shallow. That was very common. And that's what he's talking about. Of course, a farmer that sows may not be cognizant of where that is, but obviously, maybe by next year he would learn. There's a section here, if you remember where it is, it's a waste of throw my seed there. So the, the seed takes root initially, but when the sun comes out and bakes it, it quickly sucks the moisture out of the soil, and the plant can't survive. These roots can't go down far enough to get any moisture. So that's what's going on. Now, there are two reasons. Well, there's three words for you to fill in here. The shallow soil represents the heart of someone who seems to accept the word. And I emphasize, seems to accept the word. From all outward appearances, takes my mind back to Jeff and a few other people I've known over the years. They seem to accept the word, but his lack of faith is obvious as soon as affliction or persecution arises and draws him away. We don't deal a whole lot with persecution in our own particular lives, other than maybe some, you know, criticism, derision, or comments people make about us, although I think that's quickly changing in America. We'll see more and more of what we can deem as persecution in the future. But we all have affliction, we all have trials, we all have problems, we all have issues in this life. That's part of living as unredeemed, or not unredeemed, but uh, fallen creatures have sin nature, and we bring some of that on ourselves, and part of it is that God will allow affliction to come into our lives to mature us, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, for example, that so we're all going to have problems. Too many people think that God exists for us, that somehow, you know, well, I just go about doing whatever I want to do, when I get in trouble, I'll ask God to solve the problem for me. That's the extent of their thinking. That's why 
believe it or not, statistics have been taken that prove that even atheists pray it now and then. Just hedging their bets, you know what I mean? Just in case. Uh, God doesn't exist to do what we want. He redeems us, he saves us, he died for us to purchase us and make us his own. And we live and exist to glorify him. Even, even if that requires affliction. Remember Paul asked the Lord to remove the thorn in the flesh three times and God said, what? My grace is sufficient. This is my plan. This is what I want you to deal with. Sometimes living for Christ and serving him and remaining faithful through affliction or even persecution, that casts a witness that's stronger than anything we could ever say. Let's move on to the back of your sheet. All those words were accept, affliction, and persecution. That would have been on screen if I remembered the projector. <laughs> Let's go back to verse 7. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Now, going down to verse 22. Jesus says in the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Now on your sheet there on the back of the top, the infested ground. This was soil that looked okay in the early spring. But it was already infested with thorn seed, roots, whatever it was. And so the grain is cast among it. Wouldn't be immediately obvious. But the thorns, that was something native to that soil. And they're going to, they're, they, they have the ability to live in that soil, thrive in that soil, more than the seed, which requires care, pollination, fertilization, all that stuff we have. If you're like me, you're always probably amazed when you plant, put in sod with your lawn, then you have all this trouble getting it to grow, and you got to water it, you got to fertilize all that, and all of a sudden there's weeds everywhere, and you, they don't need anything. Of course, that's, that's part of the fall of Rome and Hibbid, too. This was a situation. The thorn came up, grew quickly, was thick, took the nutrients from the soil, the water from the seed. The seed doesn't survive. So this represents the listener who outwardly seems to accept, again, seems to accept the word. But his lack of faith is apparent when he's drawn away by worldly concerns. Worldly things he's worrying about. Wealth is mentioned here. He's worried about his own pleasure, his own comfort, how much money he has, how big his bank account is. Then we have the receptive ground. Going back to verses 8 and 9. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Now moving over to verse 23. Jesus says, the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So the good soil was well cultivated, deep, free of weeds. The seeds that fell there produced a bumper crop in the parable. The receptive soil represents the heart of the true believer who understands the word, places their faith in Christ, and bears fruit in varying degrees. Those represented by the good soil are the only ones in this parable of whom Jesus said that they understood the word. 
That's key to interpreting this. Because when we read it, we say, well, those that fell in the shallow ground, they looked good for a while. Did they just kind of have it and lose it? No, they never understood it. The ones that fell among the thorns, they, they, they sprung up all right, and then they were choked out later. Did they have it and lose it? No, they never had it. The first one, the ones that fell on the beaten path, it specifically says they didn't understand. Jesus said they didn't understand. He doesn't say that about the next two, but neither does he say they understood. So we have to understand, the first three never understood. The only one that is said to have understood is the one that fell on the good soil. Some people get all concerned about, is this talking about losing your salvation? No. This is talking about people that accept religion. The Christian religion. Not the Christ. Christianity is not a religion. Unfortunately, Satan has infiltrated the church over the years to the point that much of organized Christendom, Christian churches, denominations and such, has become a religion in people's minds. Not in the mind of God. That, that is a, a concoction of man. Christianity is not a religion. The only the absolute only, if we can use the term religion loosely, only religion worldwide, the only denomination, the only, the only uh, ism that isn't a religion is true Christianity. Because all the rest are based on man doing something to earn something or achieve something. Only the true Believers who trust in the grace of God alone and not themselves. That's not religion. That's about a saving relationship. But a lot of people within the scope of Christendom are religious. And they are not redeemed in the sense of having accepted the redemption of God. Years ago when I was in seminary, my wife and I were attending a church and they brought in this group of ladies from another big church, a big mega church somewhere in America, I can't remember exactly where. And they had a program in those days that they were teaching everybody how to share the gospel and how to win people to Jesus Christ. Missed over right there because we don't win anybody. To <laughs> God wins them. We're just a conduit. We're just a, a mouthpiece. But we were young, and, and I'm, you know, I came out of Methodism, and I, I mean, I never heard anybody hardly talk about anybody getting saved in those days, and I ended up getting saved, and I left that, and I, I went to this seminary, and it was a good seminary, but this particular church we attended, and, and some of the people that were associated with our school was there, and they had this idea that our responsibility was to get somebody and drag them into the kingdom of God. So this group taught that you didn't ask someone permission to share the gospel, you just found them and you just started sharing the gospel. And moreover, when you got finished sharing the gospel, you didn't say to them, would you like to accept Jesus? You, say, you wouldn't say that at all. They just said, now, what you've told them, just simply say, now bow your head with me and pray this prayer. And, and <laughs> almost everybody will do that. Why? Bible Belt, the South. Not maybe so many born-again Christians, but there's a lot of people who are Christianized. And if somebody who seems to be religious begins to quote scripture to you and says, now you repeat this prayer. Most people are going to say, just like the atheist who pray once in a while, might as well, can't do any harm. I'll do this religious thing. It's amazing how many people will pray that prayer and people think, well, well now we're, we're winning people to Jesus Christ that are falling into the church. No, that's the part. They didn't fall into the church. They didn't have anything real. 
never understood the difference between religion and grace to begin with. Now, in some cases, they will come to church. In some cases, then, they're all involved. I, I could give you a whole list of people over the years I've seen in my own churches. They know less. Cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, affliction, persecution, whatever it is. That's normal. I mean, I hate to use that terminology, but that's normal. That's the way it is in this dispensation of the It's the way it is in the kingdom of God, which stretches, by the way, put a chart on your uh, table this morning so you can see the fine print when I put up the chart, but I can't even put up the chart, so, <laughs> but you have one on your table. Uh, that period of time that stretches between the first coming of Christ and the second coming, he calls the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that comes from heaven. And we had that flow chart last week that I wanted to put back up, how the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of heaven, that exists in the hearts of those who are God's people in this world. We have a foothold in this world, but we don't rule the world. We rule our lives in the scope of the church. Eventually, the kingdoms of the world come to an end, and the millennial kingdom comes to pass. And not until the Lord comes back and that's about to happen does the kingdom of heaven end. But during this period, the kingdom of heaven this is what it's going to be like. So let's talk about this. What is the singular interpretation of this parable? Now, I've had about two dozen descriptive phrases that I've written down trying to boil this down to the singular point. Because remember, there's a single comparison. Now, there's multiple aspects of the parable here. You've got to figure out what's the comparison and what's the peripheral things. <clears throat> the comparison here is not between the sower and the soil. It's not between the seed and the soil even necessarily. The point is the only thing that differs in these four descriptions is the soil. Because in this world, I believe everybody, I believe everyone in this world has an opportunity to accept Jesus Christ. Now, I know I've people say, what about the, the primitive nations and never even heard the word of God? David said, behold, the heavens declare the glory of God. I believe if somebody responds to the grace they have, God will bring them the, the rest. Hmm. Now what happened to Cornelius in the book of Acts? others. God hadn't excluded anybody from his truth. It's obvious in one way or another. If they respond to whatever revelation they have, God will give them the message of Christ, I believe. So, everyone has an opportunity. But here's the point that I wrote down. Although most people, most, although most people will reject Christ, now, when I say reject Christ, I'm including those who reject him outright on the path. Those that initially say, okay, and they just kind of, I'll get in on this religion thing, and they look good for a while. The hardened rock underneath, <coughs> the thorns, that's those. All that's wrapped up in this first statement. Although most people will reject Christ, most. Most people will reject Christ during the interim period between the first and second coming. Many, many will become true believers. That's what we got to keep in our head. Here's the contest. Here's the contrast. Most reject, but there's a, a lot of people who do accept Christ. Here's the thing we've got to remember. That, that means what? We're not going to win the world. We're not going to win everybody in the world. We're not going to bring in the kingdom by winning everybody in the world, right? Jesus is going to bring in the kingdom, and he's only going to allow believers into that kingdom. But we live in a time period when, yes, there's many people that 
will come to Christ. And yes, our job as believers, following the command of the Great Commission, is to make disciples of all people. But we're not going to make disciples of every individual. All the people in the world will make disciples of. In fact, I, uh, we'll get into this in a later parable. I got some statistics. It's amazing about it. how many people have been reached for Christ in this world. But we're still the minority. Most reject. Now that brings us to the application. Number one, the majority of those who hear the word will reject it. Here's the second mistake I've made this week. It should say Matthew 7, 13 to 14. Somehow I didn't get to verse 14 in there. So somebody has Matthew 7, 13 to 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now be careful with this, because most people get tripped up between the broad road and the narrow road. We're very familiar with this. Why is the road broad that leads to destruction. Does anybody think they got an answer to that? Because there's many more on There's a four-lane yeah, highway. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> so most people are headed in that direction and they need a lot of space. Yeah. It's like when people come in back from work, from Houston area on 45, they need a lot of lanes. They're all going to the same place. So let's turn it around. Why is the road that's headed to heaven a narrow road? It's just the opposite. There's not that many people on that road. It doesn't have anything to do with, well, the broad road means I just think I can do all these bad things and be okay, God will look. People believe that kind of stuff. But that's not the point of the broad road. The broad road is telling us the same thing that the parable of the sower is telling us. Now, who has... Uh, oh, I'm not so next one. So let's look at number one. The majority, first application. The majority of those who hear the word will reject it. Here's the application. We should not be deterred from sowing seeds by a lack of response. Let me tell you all kinds of stories from the field of missions. Admiral Judson, the first, well, one of the very first group of missionaries that went out to North America, colonial America shortly after we became a nation. Went to Burma. I think the modern day uh, name is, I can't think of it, it starts with an M. But anyway, Burma doesn't exist in the nation anymore. It's a different name now. But it's over in Asia. He and his wife went there and went through incredible suffering. Incredible trials, affliction, persecution. They never had a single convert for six years. Six years. I don't know about you, but I think two or three, and I <laughs> said this place is, is uh, hopeless. Don't you? Don't you think you would? What keeps us faithful to doing what God's called us to do? It's not how many, because we know. We're not going to change every heart. We're not even going to change the majority. But we will be able to reach some. Number two. Many that profess Christ will walk away from him. Now here's the third mistake I made this morning. It should say Matthew 7, 24 to 27. I think that's on the card I passed out. But change that on your sheet, Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Who has that? Okay. 
Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And anyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The foolish man chooses the wrong foundation. The wise man chooses the solid foundation. It's the same comparison we see in Matthew 13, parable of the son. Ultimately, some people trust in their religion, the sand, or something else. So application number two, we should not be surprised or become discouraged by defections. See, I was surprised when Jeff walked away from everything because I wasn't expecting that. It's very discouraging. No, I'm still discouraged when somebody does that, okay? To a degree. But not to the degree I was then. <coughs> now I know it's not my failure. It's not the church's failure. It's not the Lord's failure. It's the heart of the person who never did, as far as we know, except for us. Now, that's important for our mindset. By the way, 1 John 2.19, who has that? These people left our churches because they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left us, it proved that they did not belong with us. So John, the apostle, was saying he had the same situation. There were those who departed. He said they weren't really of us. They weren't real, or they wouldn't have departed from the faith. It's a normal thing see this happen. Number three, true believers will not all bear the same amount of fruit. That seems to be something he emphasizes among, or adds as another point of emphasis to the good soil. A lot of fruit is produced. And there's no reason that I can figure out why Jesus would say, why didn't he just stop and say they produce fruit? No, so 30-fold. Now, that's a lot of fruit. 30 times the seed that's sowed. You think of wheat, it produces a lot of wheat seed, you know, from one seed. The crop, 30-fold, that's a lot. 60 is a whole lot, and 100 is unbelievably a lot. Now, that fruit is not to be connected with agriculture in the sense that our fruit is other Christians that spring up, although the fruit of our life and witness can result in that. But you can't look at an Adoniram Judson that I mentioned earlier and say he was fruitless for six years. No. During that time, he translated the scriptures into the Burmese language. That was fruit. The fruit is about anything that we do to glorify God. Bearing the witness is part of that. The fruit of the Spirit references our character, our being, for example. But here's the thing, the second part of this. We must not allow this reality to frustrate us or cause us to be judgmental toward fellow believers. Because you might be a 60-fold and you're looking at somebody who's a 30-fold and say, what's wrong with that guy? And if someone is just a, 
a newborn believer, there may not be any fruit you're seeing. For the most part, very little anyway. And I've heard so many people over the years, within the scope of the church, and this comes from people that are mature and they're fruit bearing and they're working and they look at somebody over there, they're trying to bring along, they're trying to disciple them, they're trying to get them to bear fruit, and they're not having any success and they get frustrated and they say, I just don't think old so-and-so is a Christian. I don't believe they're really believing. I don't see any fruit. Now ultimately, that would be a good conclusion. I can tell you people who are saved. I can think of one man that I know of who was saved in church, serving the Lord, and something really bad happened to him. He stepped away from God. Not for a year, not for five years, not for ten years. I think it was like 15 years or more. By all estimation, anybody looking at the guy would say, stony ground, Lord, didn't understand. Do you know that man? Finally, repented, came back. Christ became a, a faithful servant in the local church and a great witness in the community. So be careful about being judged. It's not our, it's not our place to judge people. And what happens when we judge somebody and say, oh, they're just not, we give up on them. We stop trying to disciple them. We start trying to, to move them forward. That's a failure on our part. We make that judgment. Finally, based on the parable of the sower, the millennial kingdom cannot now be in That's important theologically. That's theology. We don't live in the kingdom. We're not bringing you the kingdom. The kingdom isn't now. The kingdom isn't the church. Not when you understand the kingdom you describe.